I love getting into the Word of God. And we're just two weeks away from uh, finishing up the book of Acts. And uh, tonight we're going to look at some good stuff. So let's pray together and let's just go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for the very Word of the living God. We thank you, Lord, that you gave us this Word, that it's inspired by you, that it's inerrant, that, Lord, you have given it to us, the record of the church when God was moving in that early church, God on the loose, so that we can learn, our faith can be built, we can be encouraged, our boldness can be increased, and Lord, you can do something new in our life. So we're asking you right now to renew our minds, and Lord, just open us up to the ministry of your word. Can you just breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive the engrafted word, able to save my soul, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to somebody and tell them it's going to be good tonight. Amen. Now, we're going to go through 26, chapter 26 tonight, and then next week we'll finish 27 and 28, and then we're done. We have gone through the whole book of Acts. And do you know that we've been doing it, when we finish, 19 weeks? And it's just been, I don't know, it hadn't seemed like it's dragged to me. I've learned so much. And um, it's been good. The Word's always good. I mean, if you just read it out loud, it's good. So let's, let's just begin. Last time we ended with Paul being introduced to King Agrippa. And he has testified now before governors Felix and Festus. And now he's going to testify before a king. So let's start here right in verse 1, chapter 26. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. Verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs, all questions which have to do with the Jews. Agrippa knew the word of God. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. He'd been raised in them. So Paul knows this. And so he goes on. You are expert in all customs and questions that have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Now, Paul is not promising here to be brief. It will be the third time in the book of Acts his personal testimony is given. We're going to read it in a minute for the third time. And... uh, with himself recounting it twice and Luke recounting it once when it actually happened. He gave, Luke wrote the record of when Paul was saved, when he was Saul. Now, there's nothing more powerful than a personal testimony about Jesus has changed your life. And Paul knew it. Uh, John the Revelator wrote, they overcame him by the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. There's something about your testimony that really defeats Satan. Now, verse 4, he starts with his testimony. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. So catch that. Saul, as a young man, was relatively famous because he stood out so much. Now, verse 5, they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I was a Pharisee. Evidently, 
the young Saul of Tarsus had made a name for himself in Jerusalem as a young person, as a youth. And uh, he was from a well-to-do influential family. And he was a disciple of the famous teacher Gamaliel, who we've talked about several times in this series. He had attended the most prestigious rabbinical college of the world of his day. He went to the Harvard of his day. And his natural talents and his intellectual brilliance, and he had both, had stood out as harbingers of a great future. When the Pharisees looked at young Saul, they said, wow, this guy is going to be a champion for us. This guy is going to, this guy is going to be a leader. He's, he's going to be a somebody. And they voted him, as it were in their minds, most likely to succeed. That's the place he held. Now, Paul expected his hearers to remember these things regarding his younger years. So clearly he was an outstanding young man, outstanding Pharisee. Now look at verse 6. And now I stand and I'm judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Now here's what he's telling them. I'm not, I'm not preaching or teaching anything that all the 12 tribes have not anticipated God doing one day. Because the prophets have all told us what was going to happen, that a Messiah was going to come, that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to suffer, Isaiah 53. They knew Isaiah 53 like the back of their hand. And that he was going to rise from the dead. This wasn't news. This wasn't new. This was not an aberration of sound theology. So he said, I'm just preaching the Bible that you all know. In other words, the accusation against him were no accusations at all. All the 12 tribes of Israel were united in having a distinctive hope that set them apart from all mankind, that God was going to send a Savior into the world to redeem people from the power, penalty, and presence of sin. And God had raised up the Jewish people, starting with Abraham, all the way down to be testifiers and witnesses of this Messiah who was to come. So he's only preaching the Bible is what he's telling these, this, this crowd of people there to judge him. Now, it began, God's promise, it began with God's promise to Eve in the garden that he would send a bruiser of Satan's head. Genesis 3.15 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Everybody should know John 3.15, that he was going to send... Uh, a, a person, a, somebody from Eve's lineage that was going to deal a death blow to the devil. And God told the devil that. That's who the promise went to. Your days are numbered, devil. I'm going to send somebody that's going to deal you a death blow. That's Genesis 3.15, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Now, this seed of the woman was to be Abraham's seed, we learn in Genesis 12, when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, that was the beginning of God working out the plan of salvation. Through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. How? Through the person of Jesus Christ. And as time passed, every godly Hebrew woman hoped that she might be the chosen mother of the Messiah. 
What did God do? He scoured the land and picked out a little teenage Jewish girl as innocent and pure as the day is long and laid his hand on her and visited her and sent Gabriel to tell her, it's you, Mary. You're going to bring forth the only begotten son of God. High honor. Amen? So that Paul would be arrested for simply proclaiming the fulfillment of the hope of all Jews was completely absurd. Now, particularly his message of the coming resurrection, which was part and parcel of the gospel message. You can read all through Acts, and anytime you read the apostles preaching, they always preach the resurrection of the dead. I told you this last week. Let me tell you again tonight that the resurrection is the crux and the core of Christianity. If you take out the resurrection, there is no Christianity. But not just the resurrection of Christ, because Paul's about to tell us that he was only first. That everybody who put their faith in him afterward was also going to be resurrected to righteousness and eternal life. So, resurrection, it ought to be preached all the time. Anytime the gospel is preached, you've got to bring in the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, we're going to rise from the dead. Amen? That's, that's just the crux and the core. So he's saying, how in the world can you be coming against me for preaching what all of you have believed the prophet spoke anyway? It was not anything to arrest him for, seeing that every Pharisee in the room believed exactly the same thing. They just didn't believe that Jesus had been the guy. After all, a God who can bind 100 billion stars into a galaxy and who can create a hundred million galaxies and hurl them into intangible space, has no problem telling you to get up from the dead. (laughs) No problem, right? I mean, come on. We serve a mighty God. Then next, Paul confesses to his crimes against Christians, and he's he's done this both times. He's honest about his past. And boy, I'll tell you, it had to be tough. Because look at verse 9, how he describes it. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things, contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints, look at what he did, many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Not only did he cast his vote against Stephen, the first martyr, But he went into homes and into synagogues and found out who was Christian, brought them out, threw them into prison, and then saw to it that they were executed. And he put in his vote for their execution. And don't you know that in his mind, when the Lord touched him and called him, he said, you must be making a mistake. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? I've killed your people. I have tortured them. I try, look, he goes on to say, I punish them. Verse 11, I punish them often in every synagogue, and I compelled them to blaspheme. So he's standing over Christians in prison, and this man, our apostle Paul, two-thirds of the New Testament he's written, got in their face and said, renounce Jesus. Renounce him, and I'll set you free. I don't know, but what some might have done it. But look at the change in this man. I mean, he was 
bad news as far as the church was concerned. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So he's walking in rage. He, he is demonically enraged, it sounds like to me. He's killing Christians. He's imprisoning them. He's ripping families apart. And he's telling this to this Sanhedrin, this court, and he's telling it to the secular governor, Festus. And he's just coming clean. And to King Agrippa, he's telling a king this. Look, he said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I hated Christianity. I, tr- I was trying to eradicate it from the earth. I was like a grand inquisitor going into synagogues, rooting out Christians, forcing them to blaspheme, killing them. And then he says, I extended my field of operations into foreign cities. Those Christians who were forced to flee to other places were only trapped incessantly by Paul. Indeed, Paul had made his full-time career to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth. But then, everybody say, but then. Now let's try, but God, God's watching this guy. God's watching him. And, 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 and finally, Jesus said, that's, that's enough. And I want you to look at what happened. Verse 12, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven. Everybody say he didn't fall from a horse. I've heard so many preachers say, God knocked him right off that horse. There's no horse. He was just walking. Now, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven. Now, read the next four words with me. Brighter than the sun. How bright is that? The glory of God is bright because he saw heaven's light brighter than the noonday sun. Wow. And shining around me, and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, this was not a private hallucination on Paul's part. You know how we know that? Because the dazzling light caused everyone to fall to the ground. They all hit the ground. They all went down. They all saw the light. The Lord's words, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, reveals that Saul had already been under conviction. I believe this. His first uh, fierce persecution of the church was in part driven by the goads of conviction at work on his conscience. There's There's no greater misery than when you're in sin and God's after you. I mean, if you're in sin and God's after you, you know you're living in sin and you're not pleasing the Lord and he's starting to turn the screw and put pressure on you and you feel convicted. You cannot find, I don't care where you go or what you do, you cannot find inner peace. There is no greater misery than that of the backslidden Christian or the person who's resisting the dealings of God. They just get meaner and meaner every day. Ornery and mean because God's after them. Maybe you got somebody like that in your household. Don't look next to them. Look up here at me. But see, if you get out of the will of God, God has many different kinds of whales to swallow you up in until you repent and say, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll walk with you, you got me. Now, here's Paul. What had he seen? 
He saw Stephen's angelic face prior to his martyrdom. It says in the book of Acts, we read it chapters ago. It says his face was like the face of an angel. So strong was the anointing on him before he died. He had heard Stephen's forceful arguments in front of the Sanhedrin, and they were forceful. It was a great message. He had witnessed his courage at the moment of his death. What did he say at the moment of his death? He said, Lord, don't hold this against them. And I believe that that doomed Saul to get saved. Don't hold this against them. He saw that. Saul saw that. And now he's faced, he is faced with the very Christ he had persecuted. In a flash of revelation, his whole life is changed. Verse 15, so I said, who are you, Lord? I think he's just wanting to make sure. And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, look at that. He had persecuted Christians, but Jesus said, you're persecuting me. Because here's the way Jesus sees if they do it. If you do it to my people, you do it to me. You touch them, you touch me. You bless them, you bless me. You curse them, you curse me. And sooner or later, if you keep doing this to my people, I'm coming after you. So he said, I'm Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, folks, it's hard for us to imagine what happened to this brilliant Old Testament theologian, this young man who had sold his soul out to go after Christians. It's impossible to know how his world unraveled right here. He was above his peers in training. He was more brilliant than his peers. He tells us later in another book, I excelled them all in my training. I I was brighter more zealous, more committed than all of them. I excelled. And all of a sudden, everything he had given his life to is falling apart in a, in a flash. Everything unraveled. All his rabbinic training was obliterated. He hadn't just been persecuting Christians. He had been persecuting the Savior of the world, and suddenly he knows that. And I had to ask this. Well, I stepped into his mind. And so a little bit of poetic license here, but... He had to have been thinking, well, okay, you're Jesus. Why have you not already obliterated me, wiped me out, turned me into ashes right here? Why not? Why why haven't you done it? And the answer came then and there. Verse 16, rise and stand on your feet, said the voice of Jesus to Saul, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister. (laughs) Say what? Make me a minister. Yeah. Make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Later he was to say, I'm going to go on to more and more revelations in the Lord. He wrote, like I said, two-thirds of the New Testament. The revelation Jesus gave him is staggering and stunning. So here the Lord is telling him, you're going to witness the things you've already seen, and I'm going to yet reveal to you more. He was to be a witness, a messenger, a minister. The word minister is the Greek word here, huperetes, huperetes. And it means an under rower, one who is in a subordinate position, one who acts under the direction of another. You know what the Lord's telling him when he said you're going to be a minister? You're no longer your own boss. You're going to be now subordinate. Now you're going to be under me. Now you're going to answer to me. You're no longer a free agent. And can I tell you tonight, church, neither are you. 
You're no longer a free agent. As soon as you got saved, he said the same thing to you. You're going to be an under rower. You're going to be in a subordinate position. You're going to be under the direction of another, and that's me. That old saying, do your own thing, you never did your own thing. You never did. When you were lost, you weren't doing your own thing. You were doing what the devil told you to do. You were the child of the devil, and you were doing what the devil and what sin told you to do. You weren't doing your own thing. You were doing Satan's thing. And then once you got saved, you're still not doing your own thing. You're doing the Lord's thing. You just switched bosses is what you did. Okay? So he's telling him you're going to be a minister, a messenger, and a witness. And so now Paul is under new orders and a new commander, and he was to serve under the direction of the Lord himself. Boy, the Lord can change things in an instant, can't he? In an instant. Now, verse 17, the Lord goes on, or he's quoting what the Lord said to him to this court. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. So he's telling this Jewish court what Jesus said to him. And I want you to keep in mind, it was unforgivable to the Jewish authorities that Saul of Tarsus, their champion, should become a Christian. This was shocking. I can't think of anything comparable. To go to the Gentiles only compounded his sin in their eyes. Not only are you a Christian, but now you're telling us he's sending you to the Gentiles who we consider to be dogs, who we won't even talk to. So they're having a problem with this testimony of Paul's. Yet Paul had the promise of the Lord himself that no matter what came against him, the Lord would deliver him. He was invincible till his work was done. I want you to say with me, I'm invincible until my work is done. You're invincible. Nothing can take you out until the Lord's done with you. Nothing. Not anything. What did he say? He said in the beginning of verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people, and I will deliver you from the Gentiles. Nobody's going to hurt you. Nobody's going to take you out until your work is done. His ministry would be characterized by the following, and I love this. Verse 18, Jesus told Paul what his preaching was going to do, what the gospel was going to do. He said, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Boy, this is so strong, I'm getting Holy Ghost bumps right now. Listen to this that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This perfectly describes the effect of the gospel. You want to know how powerful our gospel is? Here's how powerful it is. First, it takes away spiritually blind eyes. It opens them. So you go from blind to sight. Second, you return from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. Blind to sight, darkness to light. Third, the satanically bound are delivered. How many of you can look back and see that, boy, Satan had a grip on you? Amen. Amen. And how many of you can remember that when you got saved and spirit-filled and, and Jesus came into your life, Satan lost his grip and he began to lose ground immediately because he delivers the satanically bound. That's the power of the gospel. And fourth, and, and I guess probably the most wonderful One experience is the forgiveness of sins. So blind to sight, darkness to light, bound to free, guilty to forgiven. 
No wonder in the first chapter of Romans, Paul proudly declares this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. So if you want to see the power of God manifested, just share the gospel with somebody lost. And if they receive Christ, you're going to see the power of God manifested. Blind to sight, darkness to light, bound to free, guilty to forgiven, just like that. We serve a mighty God. Amen. And so we see Paul here. He, he's the king. King Agrippa is, is sitting there listening to this. And King Agrippa was living in sin and shame. His wife, Bernice, with her sad, stained record, sat there. And the entire court filled with who's who's of Roman society and Jewish religious leaders all heard the gospel of Christ in all of its delivering power presented with boldness and clarity. I think you could have heard a pin drop on a shag carpet. The anointing of God was so strong on that place. Nobody said a word. Paul continues, verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa... I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they would repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Now, Paul has made clear by his testimony of being confronted by Christ why he has so wholeheartedly, with every fiber of his being, thrown himself into the preaching of the gospel. His conversion was an event of so revolutionary a character, such far-reaching consequence, with such an impact on the history of the world that it demanded an adequate cause. And he now has beautifully explained the cause. Agrippa, I was just going down the road to Damascus, mine and my own, ready to kill some more Christians, ready to wreak more havoc on the church when suddenly this light brighter than the sun shone around me and I was knocked to the ground and those with me and the voice of the one that I've been persecuting spoke to me. He knew my name. He knew my number. He knew all about me. And he said, you're under conviction, Saul. Aren't you tired of kicking against it? You're under conviction. Aren't you ready to get it right, Saul? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus and I've got a plan for you. Your life is over as far as living it for yourself. Now you're going to serve me. And you're going to do what I tell you to do. And you're going to suffer. But you're going to fulfill your purpose. And I'm going to take you to glory. Because I'm God and you're not. Isn't that powerful? Everybody can say, he can do what he wants. Let's say it again. He can do what he wants. I mean, the Lord can do what he wants. Now look at verse 21. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Now Festus had what he wanted. He's the one that got Agrippa there to hear Paul's testimony. The reason for the riot in the temple and the subsequent arrest of Paul has now been explained. Paul has given his side. But there's a problem with it, and it's this. Now, Festus is faced or forced to face the fact that an innocent man is standing in front of him, guilty of no crime that Rome could ever recognize, 
simply the object of intense religious hatred from his own contemporaries. And he's been forced to appeal to Caesar because of political incompetence and opportunism on Festus's part. If Festus had just said, you know what, I don't see any problem here, and I don't see any crime for which he should be arrested, I'm just going to let him go free. He should have done that. But he copped out. He played politics. He said, Paul, would you be open to going to Jerusalem and, and, and going in front of the Jews again? And, and he, he forced Paul into a corner, and Paul said, absolutely no way. I haven't done anything for them to prosecute me, and so if you're going to make me do that, I, as a Roman citizen, appeal to Caesar. I'm going to Caesar. And now Festus realizes I made a real mistake forcing him into that corner. Because now I'm going to have to tell Nero why he's having to deal with something that's not worthy of his attention. And King Agrippa also surely saw all of this by now. Festus had acted unwisely, and he, Agrippa, must have secretly been very thankful that it was Festus who had to explain all this to Emperor Nero and not him. Got it? Everybody say politics are as old as life itself. There's nothing new under the sun. Festus wasn't out for justice. He was out for favor and political points and money. I mean, gosh, I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore today, right? I mean, really, Washington, nothing like that has happened in a long time. Here we're seeing the politicians are always the same. Now, there's a few good ones, but, oh, Lord, help us. Aren't you glad God's in control of Washington ultimately? And by the way, aren't you thrilled that President Trump announced Memorial Day, a day of prayer from now and forever? Did you know that? He did. I I don't know. You know, you may not like President Trump. But I'm going to tell you, the other guy wouldn't have done that if he'd have been in there for 50 years. Okay, I'm done with politics because I'm getting some of you looking at me with a furrowed brow. I don't want to lose you. All right. Verse 22. Therefore, Paul is continuing now, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand. Witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. That the Christ would suffer. That he would be the first to, say it with me everybody, rise from the dead. And would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So now he's homing in. He's saying Jesus that you killed, that you Jewish leaders killed, he rose from the dead. His message of Jesus crucified and resurrected was merely a confirmation of what Moses and the prophets had predicted. He could document every one of his claims with scriptural quotations. That's what I like about Paul's preaching. He always stayed with the word of God as I try to do. His preaching was, in fact, fundamental and biblical to the core. He wasn't saying anything new. This was not a, a, a new doctrine by some cult leader. This was what all of them believed. They just didn't believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of it. I love what comes next. Verse 24, the conviction was so strong on this room by now, you could cut it with a knife. So look what happens. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus blurted with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. 
Much learning is driving you mad. In other words, shut up, I can't take it. He couldn't take anymore. And so he rudely interrupted the anointed apostle, calling him mad. Uh, the word he uses for mad is the Greek word minami, and we translate that into mania. In other words, he's accusing Paul of being genuinely insane, delusionally insane. Paul, you have lost your ever-loving mind. If you believe that this guy, Jesus, got up from the dead and, and that you're also going to be raised from the dead, Paul, you're insane. But you know what? The sanest man in the room was Paul. And here's how he answered. He said, no, 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 Festus. I'm not mad, most noble Festus. But speak the words of truth and reason, which crazy people don't do. If you ever go visit somebody who really is, has gone psychotic, and you talk to them, the last thing you're going to get is truth and reason. The only man in that room who took into account all the factors in life's equation was Paul. He was the only man there in touch with both worlds, this world and the world to come. And I want to remind you, what did he tell Timothy? We have been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a what? A sound mind. A sound mind. See, when you get in touch with that other world, you get filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people may call you crazy, but actually it's, it's made you sane. Because look at what you did before you were saved. Was that not insane? I mean, isn't sin insane every time? I mean, you're doing things that are going to send you to hell. You're doing things that are going to break your relationship with God. You're doing things that are destroying yourself. And we call that sane? I would call a lot of America right now insane because they've sold out to the flesh and to the devil. But who's sane? Those who have the spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. Jesus takes freaks and turns them into people. He takes insane people and makes them sane. So Paul was the only one there in touch with both worlds, this world and the world to come. And he wasn't speaking like a madman. He was using truth and reason. Now next, Paul turns his focus straight to Agrippa, who knew all about Jesus due to his proximity to the ministry of Jesus. And look at verse 26. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. Now, he's focused on Agrippa. There sits Agrippa. He, he homes in on him, and he says, the king sitting there knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing, that is the ministry of Jesus, was not done in a corner. For three and a half years, Jesus had preached, crossing and recrossing the country from northern Galilee to Jerusalem. His ministry of word and miracles had been impossible to ignore. How do you ignore somebody walking on water, feeding thousands from a few loaves of bread and fish, uh, healing blind eyes, opening deaf ears, raising the dead three times? How do you ignore that? And he knew, Agrippa knew about this. His mock trial and crucifixion, his burial in the borrowed tomb, his resurrection had rocked the country. With Paul's conversion, the opposition's star witness had turned state's evidence. And the radical Jewish leaders sitting there, they had no further hope of silencing the voice of truth regarding Jesus Christ. And now 
Paul pulls in really tight on Agrippa and appeals directly to him. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Now guess who's in court? I said, now guess who's in court? It started out Agrippa questioning Paul, but now it's all changed. And Paul's looking at him saying, tell me what you think about the prophets. I know you believe the prophets. Agrippa, let's get real. He's the one in court now. He had known the Jewish scriptures all of his life. And now he's having his own Damascus Road experience in this way. Paul is presenting to him the reality of the risen Christ. And Agrippa's answer is so sad. Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Well, almost is not good enough. You almost persuade me. Paul, I'm almost there. You're reaching me, but you're not. I'm just about there. Paul, wow, you're really speaking to me. Almost. I'm on the edge. I'm on the periphery. I'm looking in. I'm really thinking about it. But, sadly, Agrippa had no desire to give up his sins. He immediately shied away. Heaven's most gifted, persuasive, and spirit-filled ambassador on earth had presented him with the gospel, and he shrugged it off. We have no record that the Holy Spirit ever gave him another chance. Now, I want to stop right here. There's people watching right now by streaming video, and I never know, but what everybody or not is saved on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning. But I want you to notice something here. Because now this thing has totally turned from a court hearing to a gospel presentation where the Holy Ghost has filled that room. And now the Holy Spirit is homed in on this king. And Paul's looking straight at him. And I want you to notice he had one chance. Just one. You never know if you're going to have another chance to come to Christ. Listen to this old hymn I dug up today, written about this very event. Almost persuaded now to believe, almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, go spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee I'll call. Now my experience has been That day never comes. When the Lord came to me sitting in juvenile home as a 16-year-old, I had a very, very clear understanding. There I am. I'm in there for drugs. I'm as lost as anybody ever was lost in all kinds of trouble. But but, uh, my main problem was I was, I was, didn't know Jesus. I was lost spiritually. And so I sinned. And when I heard the gospel, how is it that I suddenly knew certain things, having never heard the gospel in all my life? Not raised in Christianity at all. Never heard the gospel. Never heard John 3.16. Had never been confronted or presented the gospel. And yet I knew this night is a defining moment for me. I'm either going to respond to this, and, and something's going to happen to me. I don't know what, but something 
good is going to happen to me or I'm going to walk away. And I knew sitting in that juvenile home that if I rejected it, there was no hope for me. I just knew it. And if you're here tonight and you're not sure about your salvation, if you don't turn to Christ, there's no hope for you. You will die in your sins and you will go to hell one day. And so it was with this whole crowd listening to Paul. Some more convenient day on the I'll call. Probably not. Now, Paul said, after Agrippa said, I'm almost persuaded, you almost persuade me. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. I don't want you in chains like me, but I want you saved like me. Somebody listening in their living room, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And he's as close to you as a prayer. A simple prayer. Why in the world would you put him off any longer? Turn to him. And see if he doesn't come into your living room, into your... Listen, somebody's going to hear this on radio one day, into your car. I'm talking right to you in the car. You're in rush hour traffic. I'm talking to you in your car. You can come to him right now driving down the road. He, he, he'll come into your car. He'll come into your heart as you are driving home or going to work. Amen. We've had many people do it. Or right now, you can pray in your living room. Or if you're in this sanctuary, you can pray and leave tonight saved. Paul said, I'd, I'd give anything if all of you who hear me today might become saved like me. Paul had one theme. Christ and one aim to turn all men to him. He was hoping that even if Festus and Agrippa rejected Jesus, somebody in that room might turn to him and be saved. But apparently it wasn't to be. I want you to listen to this next account of what went down. Verse 30, when he had said these things, the king stood up, Agrippa, who he had focused on so strongly, the king stood up as well as the governor Festus and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. The meeting was over. And one by one, they rose. Their golden opportunity to accept Jesus had passed. But listen, another guest, the Holy Spirit of God was there as well. And he was recording it all for another day the day of the great judgment. The governor Festus stood as well. Well, King Agrippa stood up first without accepting him. His greatest decision had been not what he was going to do with Paul, but what he was going to do with Jesus. He rejected him. Then Festus stood up as well. Paul was insane. Christianity was for fools. He wanted none of it, and he walked off into hell. And Bernice arose, that poor young woman. We know she was rich, and we know she was beautiful. History tells us that. Yet she was soiled by sin. And she had passed up the chance of being cleansed and forgiven. She also stood up, walked out. For her, it was Agrippa or Jesus, and she chose Agrippa. Only sad thing is, he won't be there at the judgment day. 
Don't ever choose a human being over Jesus. And, those, and then the, the rest of the crowd is lumped in this way, those who sat with them. All of them rose together. One by one, the rich, the powerful, and the influential made their decision and stood to leave all still lost in their sins. Again, sometimes we only get one chance to turn, one chance to accept the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus it was for all of these. And I am convinced it was for me. If I had walked away from Christ that night in juvenile home, if I had rejected the offer, I wouldn't be here tonight. When he knocks, open that door. Now look what happened. Verse 32, then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now Festus knows without a doubt that he had failed the law and aborted justice regarding Paul because even Agrippa now sees that Paul was innocent. He should have freed him instead of trying to curry favor with the Jews by bringing him to Jerusalem. His politicking had forced Paul's hand to appeal to Caesar himself. His name, Festus, though he didn't know it at the time, would come to be known by millions of people all the way down to us tonight throughout the ages for the injustice and the disservice he did to Paul. He should have let him go. Paul was unquestionably innocent of the crimes he was accused of. Festus had been made a fool of. The Jewish-run Sanhedrin had set him up and he had bitten the bait. So now Festus's original problem is back in his lap. Paul is headed to Caesar. Festus likely framed a letter for Caesar that laid the blame on Paul, trying to make himself look as innocent and competent as possible. No doubt he did that. He's a politician. So now, a little bit of history, and I'm, and I'm finished for tonight. This all happened in AD 59. We're 11 years away from the total destruction of Jerusalem when over a million Jews are going to be slaughtered. Nero was emperor, but he had not yet shown his monstrous true colors. He had not yet released his savage persecution against the church, or Paul would probably have never appealed to him. So now the gears are in motion, and nothing can stop it. Paul will, as a result of appealing to Caesar, spend more years in captivity. To the emperor Nero, Paul must now go. And we're headed to the end of his life. And we'll deal with that next week. Can we stand together? Amen, amen. In God good. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Let's just thank him for his goodness, his kindness. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of this incredible man of God who stayed strong though he so often stood alone. And now, Lord, he has testified to two governors and a king, and he's headed to the Caesar. And, Lord, we thank you for his testimony, for his courage. We thank you, Lord, for what we have learned, that we should never live to please men, but always live to please God. Never allow ourselves to be manipulated by men into a position or making a decision that will put us into a really bad place, but always to trust you and lean on you and stay true to truth, and truth will stay true to us. So, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the testimony of this man. Now, let's just worship the Lord for a couple of minutes before we go tonight.